Chapter 5, Part 1 of Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jane Bennett. Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon by Austin Layard. Chapter 5, Part 1. We were again in Mosul by the 12th of October. The Jabours, my old workmen, had now brought their families to the town. I directed them to cross the river and to pitch their tents over the excavations at Kuyangchik, as they had formerly done around the trenches at Nimrod. The Bedouins, unchecked in their forays by the Turkish authorities, had become so bold that they ventured to the very walls of Mosul, and I felt it necessary to have a strong party on the ruins for self-defence. The Jabours were, however, on good terms with the Bedouins, and had lately encamped amongst them. About one hundred workmen, divided into twelve or fourteen parties, were employed at Kuyanchik. The Arabs, as before, removed the earth and rubbish, while the more difficult labour with the pick was left entirely to the Nestorian mountaineers. My old friend Yakub, the Rais of Astheta, was named superintendent of the Tiyari workmen, for whom I built mud huts near the foot of the mound. The work having thus begun at Kulianjik, I rode with Hormister to Nimrod for the first time on the 18th of October. It seemed but yesterday that we had followed the same track. We stopped at each village and found, in each, old acquaintances ready to welcome us. From the crest of the hill halfway, the first view of Nimrod opened upon us, the old mound on which I had gazed so often from this spot, and with which so many happy recollections were bound up, rising boldly above the jive, the river winding through the plain the distant wreaths of smoke marking the villages of Nifa and Nimrod. I dismounted at my old house, which was still standing, though somewhat in ruins, for it had been the habitation of the Kirya during my absence, and to avoid the vermin swarming in the rooms, my tent was pitched in the courtyard, and I dwelt entirely in it. The village had still, comparatively speaking, a flourishing appearance, and had not diminished in size since my last visit. The Tanzimat, or reformed system of local administration, had been introduced into the Peshalik of Mosul, and although many of its regulations were evaded, and arbitrary acts were still occasionally committed, Yet on the whole, a marked improvement had taken place in the dealings of the authorities with the subjects of the Sultan. The great cause of complaint was the want of security. The troops under the command of the Pasha were not sufficient in number to keep the Bedouins in check, and there was scarcely a village in the low country which had not suffered more or less from their depredations. Nimrod was particularly exposed to their incursions, and the inhabitants lived in continual agitation and alarm. By sunrise I was amongst the ruins. The mound had undergone no change. There it rose from the plain, 
the same sunburnt yellow heap that it had stood for twenty centuries. The earth and rubbish, which had been heaped over the excavated chambers and sculptured slabs, had settled and had left uncovered in sinking the upper part of several bas-reliefs. A few colossal heads of winged figures rose calmly above the level of the soil, and with two pairs of winged bulls, which had not been reburied on account of their mutilated condition, was all that remained above ground of the Northwest Palace, that great storehouse of Assyrian history and art. Collecting together my old excavators from the Shemuti and Jehesh, the Arab tribes who inhabit Nimrod and Nifa, and from the tents of a few Jabours who still lingered round the village to glean a scanty subsistence after the harvest, I placed workmen in different parts of the mound. The Northwest Palace had not been fully explored. Most of the chambers, which didn't contain sculptured slabs, but were simply built of sun-dried bricks, had been left unopened. I consequently directed a party of workmen to resume the excavations where they had been formally abandoned. New trenches were also opened in the ruins of the centre palace, where as yet no sculptures had been discovered in their original position against the walls. The high conical mound forming the northwest corner of Nimrod, the pyramid as it has usually been called, had always been an object of peculiar interest, which want of means had hitherto prevented me fully examining. With the exception of a shaft about 40 feet deep, sunk nearly in the centre and, and passing through a solid mass of sun-dried bricks, no other opening had been made into this singular ruin. I now ordered a tunnel to be carried into its base on the western face, and on a level with the conglomerate rock upon which it rested. As I ascended the mound next morning, I perceived a group of travellers on its summit, their horses picketed in the stubble. Ere I could learn what strangers had thus wandered to this remote region, my hand was seized by the faithful Bairakta. Beneath, in an excavated chamber, wrapped in his travelling cloak, was Rawlinson deep in sleep, wearied by a long and harassing night's ride. For the first time we met in the Assyrian ruins, and besides the greetings of old friendship, there was much to be seen together and much to be talked over. The fatigues of the journey had, however, brought on fever, and we were soon compelled, after visiting the principal excavations, to take refuge from the heat of the sun in the mud huts of the village. The attack increasing in the evening, it was deemed prudent to ride into Mosul at once, and we mounted our horses in the middle of the night. During two days, Colonel Rawlinson was too ill to visit the excavations at Kuyunjik. On the third, we rode together to the mound. After a hasty survey of the ruins, we parted, and he continued his journey to Constantinople and to England, to reap the laurels of a well-earned fame. My readers would be wearied were I to relate, day by day, the progress of the excavations, and to record, as they were gradually made, 
the discoveries in the various ruins. It will give a more complete idea of the results of the researchers to describe the sculptured walls of a whole chamber when entirely explored, instead of noting, one by one, as dug out, bas-reliefs which form but part of the same subject. I will therefore merely mention that during the months of October and November, my time was spent between Kuyanjik and Nimrod, and that the excavations were carried on at both places without interruption. Mr. Cooper was occupied in drawing the bas-reliefs discovered at Kuyangjik, living in Mosul and riding over daily to the ruins. To Mr. Hormas Rassam, who usually accompanied me in my journeys, were confided, as before, the general superintendence of the operations, the payment of the workmen, the settlement of disputes, etc., his services were invaluable and of the greatest consequence to the success of my labours. The Arab workmen were divided into several classes, and their wages varied according to their respective occupations, as well as according to the time of year. They were generally paid weekly by Hormuzd. The diggers, who were exposed to very severe labour and even to considerable risk, received from two piastres and a half to three piastres, from fivepence to sixpence a day. Those who filled the baskets from two piastres to two and a half, and the general workmen from one and a half to two piastres. The earth, when removed, was sifted by boys, who earned about one piastre for their day's labour. These wages may appear low, but they are amply sufficient for the support of a family in a country where the camel load of wheat, nearly 480 pounds, is sold for about four shillings, and where no other protection from the inclemencies of the weather is needed than a linen shirt and the black folds of an Arab tent. The Kuyanjik workmen were usually paid in the subterraneous galleries, some convenient space where several passages met being chosen for the purpose, those of Nimrod generally in the village. A scene of wild confusion ensued on these occasions, from which an inexperienced observer might argue a sad want of order and method. This was, however, but the way of doing business usual in the country. When there was a difference of opinion, he who cried the loudest gained the day, and after a desperate struggle of voices, matters relapsed into their usual state, everyone being perfectly satisfied. Screaming and gesticulation with Easterns by no means signify ill will, or even serious disagreement. Without them, except of course amongst the Turks who are staid and dignified to a proverb, the most ordinary transactions cannot be carried on, and they are frequently rather symptoms of friendship than of hostility. By the end of November, several entire chambers had been excavated at Kuyanjik, and many bas-reliefs of great interest had been discovered. The four sides of the hall, part of which has already been described, had now been explored. In the centre of each side was a grand entrance, guarded by colossal human-headed bulls. 
This magnificent hall was no less than 124 feet in length by 90 feet in breadth, the longest sides being those to the north and south. It appears to have formed a centre, around which the principal chambers in this part of the palace were grouped. Its walls had been completely covered with the most elaborate and highly finished sculptures. Unfortunately, all the bas-reliefs, as well as the gigantic monsters at the entrance, had suffered more or less from the fire which had destroyed the edifice, but enough of them still remained to show the subject, and even to enable me in many places to restore it entirely. The narrow passage leading from the great hall at the southwest corner had been completely explored. Its sculptures have already been described. It opened into a chamber 24 feet by 19, from which branched two other passages. The one to the west was entered by a wide doorway, in which stood two plain spherical stones about three feet high, having the appearance of the bases of columns, although no traces of any such architectural ornament could be found. This was the entrance into a broad and spacious gallery, about 218 feet long and 25 wide. A tunnel at its western end cut through the solid wall, as there was no doorway on this side of the gallery, led into the chambers excavated by Mr. Ross, thus connecting them with the rest of the building. I have already described the bas-reliefs, representing the conquest of a mountainous country on the southern side of the Great Hall. The same subject was continued on the western wall, without much variety in the details. But on the northern, the sculptures differed from any others yet discovered, and from their interest and novelty merit a particular notice. But before giving a description of them, I must return to the long gallery to the west of the Great Hall, as the sculptures still preserved in it form part of and complete this important series. The slabs on one side of this gallery had been entirely destroyed, except at the eastern end, and from the few which still remained, every trace of sculpture had been carefully removed by some sharp instrument. Along the opposite wall, that to the right on leaving the Great Hall, only eight bas-reliefs still stood in their original position, and even of these only the lower part was preserved. Detached fragments of others were found in the rubbish, and from them I ascertained that the whole gallery had been occupied by one continuous series, representing the different processes adopted by the Assyrians in moving and placing various objects used in their buildings, and especially the human-headed bulls, from the first transport of the huge stone in the rough from the quarry to the raising of these gigantic sculptures in the gateways of the palace temples. On these fragments were seen the king in his chariot, superintending the operations, and workmen carrying cables or dragging carts loaded with coils of rope, and various implements for moving the colossi. I will commence then by a description of the sculptures still standing in their original position in the gallery. 
a huge block of stone, probably of the alabaster used in the Assyrian edifices, somewhat elongated in form so as to resemble an obelisk in the rough, is lying on a low, flat-bottomed boat floating on a river. It has probably been towed down the Tigris from some quarry and is to be landed near the site of the intended palace to be carved by the sculptor into the form of a colossal bull. It exceeds the boat considerably in length, projecting beyond both the head and stern, and is held by upright beams fastened to the sides of the vessel and kept firm in their places by wooden wedges. Two cables are passed through holes cut in the stone itself, and a third is tied to a strong pin projecting from the head of the boat. Each cable is held by a large body of men, who pull by means of small ropes fastened to it and passed around their shoulders. Some of these trackers walk in the water, others on dry land. The number altogether represented must have been nearly 300, about a hundred to each cable, and they appear to be divided into distinct bands, each distinguished by a peculiar costume. Some wear a kind of embroidered turban, through which their long hair is gathered behind. The heads of others are encircled by a fringed shawl whose ends hang over the ears and neck, leaving the hair to fall in long curls upon the shoulders. Many are represented naked, but the greater number are dressed in short, checkered tunics with a long fringe attached to the girdle. They are urged on by taskmasters armed with swords and staves. The boat is also pushed by men wading through the stream. An overseer, who regulates the whole proceedings, is seated astride on the forepart of the stone. His hands are stretched out in the act of giving commands. The huge stone having been landed and carved by the Assyrian sculpture into the form of a colossal human-headed bull is to be moved from the bank of the river to the site it is meant to occupy permanently in the palace temple. This process is represented on the walls of the Great Hall. From these bas-reliefs, as well as from discoveries to be hereafter mentioned, it is therefore evident that the Assyrians sculptured their gigantic figures before, and not after, the slabs had been raised in the edifice. Although all the details and the finishing touches weren't put in, as it will be seen, until they had been finally placed. I am still, however, of opinion that the smaller bas-reliefs were entirely executed after the slabs had been attached to the walls. In the first bas-relief I shall describe, the colossal bull rests horizontally on a sledge, similar in form to the boat containing the rough block from the quarry. But either in the carving, the stone has been greatly reduced in size, or the sledge is much larger than the boat as it considerably exceeds the sculpture in length. The bull faces the spectator, and the human head rests on the forepart of the sledge, which is curved upward and strengthened by a thick beam, apparently running completely through from side to side. The upper part, or deck, is otherwise nearly horizontal. 
the under or keel being slightly curved throughout. Props, probably of wood, are placed under different parts of the sculpture to secure an equal pressure. The sledge was dragged by cables and impelled by levers. The cables are four in number, two fastened to strong projecting pins in front and two to similar pins behind. They are pulled by small ropes passing over the shoulders of the men, as in the bas-reliefs already described. On the bull itself are four persons, probably the superintending officers. The first is kneeling and appears to be clapping his hands, probably beating time to regulate the motions of the workmen, who, unless they applied their strength at one and the same movement, would be unable to move so large a weight. Behind him stands a second officer with outstretched arm, evidently giving the word of command. The next holds to his mouth either a speaking trumpet or an instrument of music. If the former, it proves that the Assyrians were acquainted with a means of conveying sound presumed to be of modern invention. In form it undoubtedly resembles the modern speaking trumpet, and in no bas-relief hitherto discovered does a similar object occur as an instrument of music. The fourth officer, also standing, carries a mace, and is probably stationed behind to give directions to those who work the levers. The sledge bearing the sculpture is followed by men with coils of rope and various implements, and drawing carts laden with cables and beams. A subject similar to that just described is represented in another series of bas-reliefs, with even fuller details. The bull is placed in the same manner on the sledge, which is also moved by cables and levers. It's accompanied by workmen with saws, hatchets, pickaxes, shovels, ropes and props, and by carts carrying cables and beams. Upon it are three officers directing the operations, one holding the trumpet in his hands, and in front walk four other overseers. Above the sledge and the workmen are rows of trees and a river on which are circular boats, resembling in shape the kufas, now used on the lower part of the Tigris, and probably like them, built of reeds and osier twigs, covered with square pieces of hide. They are heavily laden with beams and implements required for moving the bulls. On a fallen slab, forming part of the same general series, is the king standing in a richly decorated chariot, the pole of which, curved upwards at the end, and ornamented with the head of a horse, is raised by eunuchs. From the peculiar form of this chariot and the absence of a yoke, it would seem to have been intended purposely for such occasions as that represented in the bas-relief, and to have been a kind of movable throne drawn by men and not by horses. Behind the monarch, who holds a kind of flower or ornament in the shape of the fruit of the pine, in one hand stand two eunuchs, one raising a parasol to shade him from the sun, the other cooling him with a fan. He appears to have been superintending the transport of one of the colossal sculptures, and his chariot is preceded and followed by his bodyguard, armed with maces.
The next series of bas-reliefs represent the building of the artificial platforms on which the palaces were erected, and the Assyrians moving to their summit, the colossal bulls. The king is again seen in his chariot drawn by eunuchs, whilst an attendant raises the royal parasol above his head. He overlooks the operations from that part of the mound to which the sledge is being dragged, and before him stands his bodyguard, a long line of alternate spearmen and archers resting their arms and shields upon the ground. At the bottom of the slab is represented a river, on the banks of which are seen men raising water by a simple machine, still generally used for irrigation in the east as well as in southern Europe, and called in Egypt a shadouf. It consists of a long pole balanced on a shaft of masonry and turning on a pivot. To one end is attached a stone and to the other a bucket, which after being lowered into the water and filled, is easily raised by the help of the opposite weight. Its contents are then emptied into a conduit communicating with the various watercourses running through the fields. In the neighbourhood of Mosul, this mode of irrigation is now rarely used, the larger skins raised by oxen affording a better supply and giving, it is considered, less trouble to the cultivator. It would appear that the men employed in building the artificial mound were captives and malefactors, for many of them are in chains, some singly, others bound together by an iron rod attached to rings in their girdles. The fetters, like those of modern criminals, confine the legs and are supported by a bar fastened to the waist or consist of simple shackles round the ankles. They wear a short tunic and a conical cap, somewhat resembling the Phrygian bonnet, with the curved crest turned backwards, a costume very similar to that of the tribute bearers on the Nimrod obelisk. Each band of workmen is followed and urged on by taskmasters, armed with staves. The mound or artificial platform, having been thus built, not always, as it has been seen with regular layers of sun-dried bricks, but frequently in parts with mere heaped-up earth and rubbish, the next step was to drag to its summit the colossal figures prepared for the palace. As some of the largest of these sculptures were full twenty feet square and must have weighed between forty and fifty tons, this was no easy task with such means as the Assyrians possessed. The only aid to mere manual strength was derived from the rollers and levers. Behind the monarch on an adjoining slab are carts bearing the cables, wedges and implements required in moving the sculpture. A long beam or lever is slung by ropes from the shoulders of three men, and one of the great wedges is carried in the same way. In the upper compartment of this slab is a stream issuing from the foot of hills wooded with vines, fig trees and pomegranates. Beneath stands a town or village, the houses of which have domes and high conical roofs, probably built of mud as in parts of northern Syria. The domes have the appearance of dish covers with a handle, the upper part being topped by a small circular projection, perhaps intended as an aperture to admit light and air. This interesting series is completed by a bas-relief, showing, it would seem, the final placing of the colossal bull.
The figure no longer lies horizontally on the sledge, but is raised by men with ropes and forked wooden props. It's kept in its erect position by beams held together by crossbars and wedges, and is further supported by blocks of stone, or wood, piled up under the body. Cables, ropes, rollers and levers are also employed on this occasion to move the gigantic sculpture. The captives are distinguished by the peculiar turbans before described. We have thus represented, with remarkable fidelity and spirit, the several processes employed to place these colossi where they still stand, from the transport down the river of the rough block to the final removal of the sculptured figure to the palace. From these bas-reliefs we find that the Assyrians were well acquainted with the lever and the roller, and that they ingeniously made use of the former by carrying with them wedges of different dimensions and probably of wood to vary the height of the fulcrum. When moving the winged bulls and lions, now in the British Museum, from the ruins to the banks of the Tigris, I used almost the same means. The Assyrians, like the Egyptians, had made considerable progress in rope twisting, an art now only known in its rudest state in the same part of the East. The cables appear to be of great length and thickness, and ropes of various dimensions are represented in the sculptures. On comparing representations of similar works among the Egyptians, it will be found that they succeeded in removing masses of stone far exceeding in weight any sculpture which has yet been discovered in Assyria. Yet it is a singular fact that whilst the quarries of Egypt bear witness of themselves to the stupendous nature of the works of the ancient inhabitants of the country, and still show on their sides engraved records of those who made them, no traces whatever, notwithstanding the most careful research, have yet been found to indicate from whence the builders of the Assyrian palaces obtained their large slabs of alabaster. That they were in the immediate neighbourhood of Nineveh, there's scarcely any reason to doubt, as strata of this material, easily accessible, abound, not only in the hills but in the plains. This very abundance may have rendered any particular quarry unnecessary, and blocks were probably taken as required from convenient spots, which have since been covered by the soil. There can be no doubt, as will hereafter be shown, that the king represented as superintending the building of the mounds and the placing of the colossal bulls is Sennacherib himself, and that the sculptures celebrate the building at Nineveh of the great palace and its adjacent temples, described in the inscriptions as the work of this monarch. Unfortunately, only fragments of the epigraphs have been preserved. From them it would appear that the transport of more than one object was represented on the walls. Besides bulls and sphinxes in stone, are mentioned figures in some kind of wood, perhaps of olive, like the two cherubims of olive tree, each ten cubits high, in the Temple of Solomon. Over the king superintending the removal of one of these colossi is the following short inscription, thus translated by Dr. Hinks. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, the great figures of bulls, 
which in the land of Bilad were made for his royal palace at Nineveh, he transported thither. The land of Bilad, mentioned in these inscriptions, appears to have been a district in the immediate vicinity of Nineveh, and probably on the Tigris, as these great masses of stone would have been quarried near the river for the greater convenience of moving them to the palace. The district of Bilad may indeed have been that in which the city itself stood. Over the representation of the building of the mound there were two epigraphs, both precisely similar, but both unfortunately much mutilated. As far as they can be restored, they have thus been interpreted by Dr. Hinks. Sennacherib, King of Assyria. Hewn stones, which, as the gods willed, were found in the land of Bilad, for the walls, or foundations, the word reads Shibri, of my palace, I caused the inhabitants of foreign countries and the people of the forests, Kershani, the great bulls for the gates of my palace to drag or bring. If this inscription be rightly rendered, we have direct evidence that captives from foreign countries were employed in the great public works undertaken by the Assyrian kings, as we were led to infer from the variety of costume represented in the bas-reliefs and from the fetters on the legs of some of the workmen. The Jews themselves, after their captivity, may have been thus condemned to labour, as their forefathers had been in Egypt, in erecting the monuments of their conquerors. And we may perhaps recognise them amongst the builders portrayed in the sculptures. From the long gallery, we have unfortunately only three fragments of inscriptions without the sculptured representations of the events recorded. The most perfect is interesting on more than one account. According to Dr. Hinks, it's to be translated, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, some object, the nature not ascertained, of wood, which from the Tigris I caused to be brought up, or through, the carry, or kasri, on sledges, or boats, I caused to be carried, or to mount. The name of the river in this inscription very nearly resembles that of the small stream which sweeps round the foot of the great mound of Kuyangji. In the fragment of another epigraph, we have mention of some objects also of wood, brought from Mount Lebanon and taken up to the top of the mound from the Tigris. These may have been beams of cedar, which it will be hereafter seen, were extensively used in the Assyrian palaces. It is highly interesting thus to find the inhabitants of Nineveh fetching their rare and precious woods from the same spots that King Solomon had brought the choicest woodwork of the Temple of the Lord and of his own palaces. On a third fragment, similar objects are described as coming from or up the same carry or kasri. I have mentioned that the long gallery containing the bas-relief representing the moving of the great stone led out of a chamber whose walls had been completely uncovered. The sculptures upon them were partly preserved and recorded the conquest of a city standing on a broad river in the midst of mountains and forests. The last bas-relief of the series represented the king seated within a fortified camp 
on a throne of elaborate workmanship, and having beneath his feet a footstool of equally elegant form, he was receiving the captives who wore long robes falling to their ankles. Unfortunately, no inscription remained by which we might identify the conquered nation. It will be remembered that excavations had been resumed in a lofty mound in the northwest line of walls, forming the enclosure round Kuyanjik. It was apparently the remains of a gate leading into this quarter of the city and part of a building, with fragments of two colossal winged figures had already been discovered in it. By the end of November the hole had been explored and the results were of considerable interest. As the mound rises nearly 50 feet over the plain, we were obliged to tunnel along the walls of the building within it, through a compact mass of rubbish consisting almost entirely of loose bricks. Following the rows of low limestone slabs from the south side of the mound, and passing through two halls or chambers, we came at length to the opposite entrance. This gateway, facing the open country, was formed by a pair of majestic human-headed bulls, fourteen feet in length, still entire, though cracked and injured by fire. They were similar in form to those of Korsabad and Kuyanjik, wearing the lofty headdress, richly ornamented with rosettes and edged with a fringe of feathers peculiar to that period. Their faces were in full, and the relief was high and bold. More knowledge of art was shown in the outline of the limbs and in the delineation of the muscles than in any sculpture I have seen of this period. The naked leg and foot were designed with a spirit and truthfulness worthy of a Greek artist. It is, however, remarkable that the four figures were unfinished, none of the details having been put in, and parts being but roughly outlined. The sculptors to the left, on entering from the open country, were in a far more unfinished state than those on the opposite side. The hair and beard were but roughly marked out, square bosses being left for carving the elaborate curls. The horned cap of the human-headed bull was as yet unornamented, and the wings merely outlined. The limbs and features were hard and angular, still requiring to be rounded off, and to have expression given to them by the finishing touch of the artist. The other two figures were more perfect. No inscription had yet been carved on either sculpture. The entrance formed by these colossal bulls was fourteen feet and a quarter wide. It was paved with large slabs of limestone, still bearing the marks of chariot wheels. The sculptures were buried in a mass of brick and earth, mingled with charcoal and charred wood. For the gates of the land had been set wide open unto the enemy, and the fire had devoured the bars. They were lighted from above by a deep shaft sunk from the top of the mound. It would be difficult to describe the effect produced, or the reflections suggested by these solemn and majestic figures, dimly visible amidst the gloom, when after winding through the dark underground passages, you suddenly came into their presence. 
Between them, Sennacherib and his hosts had gone forth in all their might and glory to the conquest of distant lands, and had returned rich with spoil and captives, amongst whom may have been the handmaidens and wealth of Israel. Through them, too, the Assyrian monarch had entered his capital in shame, after his last and fatal defeat. Then the lofty walls, now but long lines of low, wave-like mounds, had stretched far to the right and to the left, a basement of stone supporting a curtain of solid brick masonry, crowned with battlements and studded with frowning towers. Behind the colossal figures and between the outer and inner face of the gateway were two chambers nearly 70 feet in length by 23 in breadth. Of that part of the entrance which was within the walls, only the fragments of winged figures discovered during my previous researches now remained. The whole entrance thus consisted of two distinct chambers and three gateways, two formed by human-headed bulls, and a third between them simply panelled with low limestone slabs like the chambers. Its original height, including the tower, must have been full 100 feet. Most of the baked bricks found amongst the rubbish bore the name of Sennacherib, the builder of the palace of Kuyanjik. A similar gateway, but without any remains of sculptured figures, and panelled with plain alabaster slabs, was subsequently discovered in the inner line of walls, forming the eastern side of the quadrangle, where the road to Barshika and Bazani leaves the ruins. At Nimrod, discoveries of very considerable importance were made in the high conical mound at the northwest corner. Desirous of fully exploring that remarkable ruin, I had employed nearly all the workmen in opening a tunnel into its western base. After penetrating for no less than 84 feet through a compact mass of rubbish, composed of loose gravel, earth, burnt bricks and fragments of stone, the excavators came to a wall of solid stone masonry. I have already observed that the edifice covered by this high mound was originally built upon the natural rock, a bank of hard conglomerate rising about 15 feet above the plain and washed in days of yore by the waters of the Tigris. Our tunnel was carried for 34 feet on a level with this rock, which appears to have been covered by a kind of flooring of sun-dried bricks, probably once forming a platform in front of the building. It was buried to the distance of 30 feet from the wall by baked bricks, broken and entire, and by fragments of stone, remains of the superstructure once resting upon the basement of still existing stone masonry. This mass of rubbish was about 30 feet high, and in it were found bones, apparently human, and a yellow earthen jar, rudely coloured with simple black designs. The rest of this part of the mound consisted of earth, through which ran two thin lines of extraneous deposit, one of pebbles, the other of fragments of brick and pottery. I am totally at a loss to account for their formation. 
I ordered tunnels to be carried along the basement wall in both directions, hoping to reach some doorway or entrance, but it was found to consist of solid masonry, extending nearly the whole length of the mound. Its height was exactly 20 feet, which, singularly enough, coincides with that assigned by Xenophon to the stone basement of the wall of the city, Larissa. The stones in this structure were carefully fitted together, though not united with mortar, unless the earth which filled the crevices was the remains of mud, used as it still is in the country as a cement. They were bevelled with a slanting bevel, and in the face of the wall were eight recesses or false windows, four on each side of a square projecting block between gradines. The basement, of which this wall proved to be only one face, was not excavated on the northern and eastern side until a later period, but I'll describe all the discoveries connected with this singular building at once. The northern side was of the same height as, and resembled in its masonry, the western. It had a semicircular hollow projection in the centre, 16 feet in diameter, on the east side of which were two recesses, and on the west four, so that the two ends of the wall were not uniform. That part of the basement against which the great artificial mound or platform abutted and which was consequently concealed by it, that is, the eastern and southern side, was of simple stone masonry without recesses or ornament. The upper part of the edifice, resting on the stone substructure, consisted of compact masonry of burnt bricks, which were mostly inscribed with the name of the founder of the centre palace, the obelisk king, the inscription being in many instances turned outward. It was thus evident that the high conical mound forming the northwest corner of the ruins of Nimrod was the remains of a square tower and not of a pyramid, as had previously been conjectured. The lower part, built of solid stone masonry, had withstood the wreck of ages, but the upper walls of burnt brick and the inner mass of sun-dried brick which they encased, falling outwards, and having been subsequently covered with earth and vegetation, the ruin had taken the pyramidal form that loose materials falling in this manner would naturally assume. End of chapter 5, part 1